Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Our first segment features the new Aprilia Tuono 660 factory. Senior editor Nick DeSena brings us his report on the flagship version of Aprilia's upright middleweight machine. He gives us his insight into whether it's worth spending the extra money on the factory version and also, of course, whether this sporting Aprilia is really the motorcycle for you. Our guest segment of Motos and Friends is brought to you by the faster and most technologically advanced 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. It's one of the most iconic sport bikes ever. Check it out in person at your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In this segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with arguably one of the most interesting Suzuki race riders of all time. Steve Stavros Parrish was a Suzuki 500cc MotoGP factory rider in the mid-1970s. He campaigned the iconic RG500 alongside teammate double world champion Barry Sheen. Those two were almost as famous for their exploits off track as for their success on it. Those were the days. Steve also raced the Isle of Man TT for about 10 years, where he won 13 silver replicas and got a podium finish. His insight into that particular brand of mayhem is fascinating. But there's way more to Steve Parrish than his motorcycle racing. He is also the most successful semi-truck racer ever. And, little-known piece of useless trivia, he's my birthday twin, 24th of February. Steve is a natural entertainer, and you can't miss his recounting of the world's most entertaining and arguably terrifying double-decker bus ride ever. If any of you were actually on that hell ride, then we'd love to hear from you. Anyway, from everyone here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. This is the latest and greatest up-spec model in the Aprilia middleweight naked lineup, uh, which includes the base 2160, which has no fancy moniker following its uh, displacement number there. And then you have the factory. And that sort of gels with how Aprilia has really described its base models and up-spec models, which in the past have used factory. We've also seen RF and uh, nomenclature like that. Okay. So what, what is it that's different about the, the factory from, from the standard? Well, not a whole lot. And again, that does kind of go in with um, Aprilia's approach to its base model versus its more up-spec offering. However, I think in this case, it's sort of a, a short list with a decent amount of benefits on the other end of it. Uh, in my my opinion, I, I would always opt for the factory just kind of right out of the gate. But the core changes are going to be to your suspension. So you have an upgraded KYB fork uh, that's now fully adjustable and also has adjustment to each leg individually. Uh, on the base model, all of your adjustments are re relegated to one leg in particular. That's really to keep costs down, things like that. However, okay. you know, having that other cartridge in the fork is going to add, um, you know, a a degree of uh, 
suspension refinement into the mix. And then of course you have an, a fully adjustable upgraded sax shock. And you know, that's pretty much it as far as hard parts and suspension changes go. Now, moving into the electronics, you have an IMU that enables lean angle detecting rider aids. You also have an up-down quick shifter as standard. Those two things are $200 options on the base model. Then you also have a solo tail cover that mimics the Tuono factory and RSV4 factory models. So it has that sort of thin kind of um, setup in the rear. Um, it is removable and you know you still have passenger pegs and things like that. So you can carry a passenger if you need to. But uh, yeah, yeah, those are the changes. And again, like I said, short list, but there is a palpable difference. Okay. So presumably using sort of pretty much the same engine, but I'm sure there are differences. Yes. Uh, there is one minor change to the, the 659 parallel twin engine. Um, you know, if you look at the Tuono 660 platform as a whole, I also include the base model in the statement, and then you compare it to the RS 660, which the chassis and engine are derived from, they are pretty much parallel to each other in terms of their design, functionality, and everything else. And that makes perfect sense. That really drives, again, with how the RS V4 and the Tuono V4 platforms have, you know, developed harmoniously, we'll say. Um, the, sure. the Tuono chassis has a slight difference in the sense that it has one less frame brace uh, attaching to that, that engine. And really that's to give the chassis a little bit more flex because again, you're probably going to be riding at, you know, street paces on a naked bike and the street is predominantly going to be its home. <laughs> yes, it's more than a capable track bike as we discovered, but you know, you're going to be doing a lot more street riding and that just introduces a tad more flex than say the RS 660s uh, version. Now the core change between these two these two bikes, you know, the RS660, which is the fully fared version, and the Tuono variants, which are naked, obviously, is you have a significantly lower gearing. Ah, okay. That would make a big difference. Yes, 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 of course. Um, the front sprocket drops a tooth. Um, and as you guys know, if you alter the gear ratios related to the front sprocket, that's actually a pretty noticeable change in your overall gear ratio. That's gonna be shortening the gear, the gearing by a significant margin. Right. Whereas if you do something to the rear sprocket size, uh, I would say it's probably, you know, it's gonna have a, an impact that's probably about half as potent, we'll say. Uh, still quite noticeable in most cases, but, uh, you know, altering that front sprocket is, is gonna be a big change. And so really that sets apart the two uh, Tuono's and RS660, because really when you look at the engine, um, bolt for bolt, they're absolutely identical. Okay. You know, same fueling, same everything, same ride modes, all of that good stuff. And, you know, with that in the US market specifically, it still has that same flat spot that sort of sits between, you know, five-ish thousand RPM and 6,000 RPM. However, that shorter gearing does help you get out of it. And, uh, not to say that you don't kind of fall into that emissions hole every now and again, you'll do that when you're riding at, you know, low RPMs, very slow technical corners, things like that, but shorter gearing, 
little bit easier to keep those R's up and stay out of it, which is nice. But that's really before we even talk about, you know, the, the performance and sort of fun of this little engine. Sure, sure. So basically, when you talk about gearing, just to, to hammer the point here, there's no changes to the internal ratios between the bikes. It's actually just the final gearing that's that's changed. Yeah, so this is final drive gearing. I okay. mean, we're only talking about the external sprockets, the okay. transmission, right. bolt for bolt. It's all the same, you know, whether you're talking 210, 660, 210, 660 factory, RS, 660, et cetera, et cetera. That's quite significant. I mean, one tooth on the on the drive sprocket is the equivalent of about two and a bit teeth on the rear. So like you say, it does make quite a big difference. Um, but it's easy enough if somebody wanted to change it, they could uh, they could literally just change over the drive sprocket and they're back to the other one. So that's a relatively easy change if somebody, somebody really felt like it or I can't imagine why they would. Yeah, again, the, you know, the Tuono has a slightly more street bias, again, because it's a naked bike. So really that shorter gearing is going to help you get into the revs more, dig into the torque more, yeah. and just get into the power bands a little bit easier than it would on a longer gear bike. It's really the difference between, you know, riding um, a Tuono V4 and an RSV4. There are internal changes between the engines and they aren't identical in this case. But the gearing is something that you'll notice is pretty significant in terms of either bike. One is geared much shorter and the other one is geared much longer because while well, the RSV4 is supposed to hit high speeds on a racetrack, right. the Tuono is supposed to hit high speeds on the street. Um, not sure if they really want me using that high speed descriptor there, but uh, that's what they do on Tuono. There you go. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, you know, this is the the parallel twin engine. We know it pretty well. It's been on the market for a, a, a couple of seasons at this point. And it's just a charming parallel twin engine and really dives into the performance end as you'd expect from Aprilia. You know, we have talked about this engine in the past. It makes roughly 100 horsepower, 50 foot-pounds of torque, according to Aprilia. And it has all of those high performance fixings, you know, it has a really lofty compression ratio. It uses a 270 degree firing order. And that really helps it mimic its, you know, bigger siblings with the V4 power plant. So when you hear this thing, it's kind of like a V4 junior, if you will. It really does sound like that raspy, aggressive <laughs> V4, despite the fact that it has two less cylinders. Now, of course, it's also way more user-friendly doesn't have near as much horsepower. Therefore, it's a lot more accessible for your average up and coming intermediate rider, someone that's graduating from a, you know, more quote unquote entry level motorcycle or those that are coming down from the big bikes and, you know, having that, that come to Jesus moment <laughs> and realizing that, hey, middleweights are great. Um, you know, they're just a lot more controllable. And, and they are, and, and really, and on the street, especially, I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a, you know, flickable, easy, nice to ride motorcycle on the street. Yeah, perfect. I love it. Yeah. And it's performance that, you know, an experienced rider can actually use yep. and get the most out of. Whereas, you know, modern super bikes, well, you know, you, you have to have some, uh, some factory badging and, you know, let's just be honest, have your, your name up on a billboard in a world superbike paddock to really, really <laughs> be pulling the strings of a, of any superbike that's on the market these days. Not, not that we all don't love a good superbike ourselves. But the reality is, you know, 100 horsepower, this power to weight ratio, and just, you know, the excitement that's in this engine, 
I think it speaks to a much broader audience and you get a lot out of it. So yes, there's good torque down low. We did mention that flat spot on the RPM. That's something that, you know, a reflash and a pipe would, you know, take care of lickety split. Sure. And then of course you, you know, you, you have all of the, the ride modes and things like that, that really sort of put the Tuono 660 platform and the RS 660 platform in, I don't want to say a class of its own, but it really does separate itself from the greater middleweight herd. And we'll get into that later. For now, let's just kind of focus on the engine, you know, but overall this engine is really fun. Like I said, it's tractable, it's peppy, has good aggression to it without kind of taking it to that next eye-opening level. And, you know, experienced riders will be able to sink their teeth into it and embrace its power, while as less experienced riders can actually hold on to it and learn and grow and grow into that bike, you know. And so that's that's really taking care of both ends of the spectrum there. And that's something that we really need to note. Sure. Okay. Moving on then. Um, you want to talk about the electronics on it? Yeah, it's it is a RSV4 and 210V4 derived. You know, of course, Aprilia being a a leader in the electronic side of things, a lot of this is trickling down, you know, to its middleweight bikes. And and that's one of the the aspects that does separate it from other middleweight motorcycles that are equivalently displaced, we'll say. So when you think about Ninja 650s, Yamaha MT07s, uh, Suzuki SV650s, those are far more affordable for one, and then far less sophisticated motorcycles in terms of suspension capabilities, chassis design, and electronic offerings. Now there's also a, a pretty big gap in terms of pricing as well, and that's self-explanatory. Now, with the 210660 factory, as I mentioned before, it does have standard uh, IMU-based electronics. So that means corner and ABS. Nice. And of course, your lean angle sensitive traction control, wheelie control, various throttle maps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and cruise control. You know, again, street. Um, you were going to say something? Oh, okay. And then, you know, within the throttle maps, um, Oh, and engine braking maps as well. Forgot about that. Everything is adjustable uh, from your uh, full color TFT display. Uh, some of the other Japanese middleweights that are much, much more affordable, we'll say, um, are getting TFTs. But again, they just don't have the sophistication uh, in terms of, well, everything else at this point. When you really look at that stuff, then you're starting to talk about MT09s and you know, Ducati Monsters, KTM 890 Dukes, uh, Triumph Street Triple 765 RSs. So the Aprilia has really sort of saw a gap and lunged for it. So you get the electronics and sophistication of a more pricier, bigger displacement motorcycle, but it's still a true middleweight. And so that's how it really differentiates itself from the rest of the guys. But, you know, in terms of electronics, you do have a few ride modes to work with okay you have a preset commuter mode pretty self-explanatory there dynamic riding mode and then of course a an adjustable or individual mode and that's your street setting that's with your street dash activated okay now if you click over into the race setting which eliminates the the big mile per hour gauge and replaces it with a lap timer you know because we all got to know our lap times um (laughs) 
And then you have um, a preset challenge mode as well as a customizable time attack mode. So grand total, you have five different modes to choose from. Two wow. of them are fully customizable. Now for my money, I pretty much just kept it in the challenge mode. Uh, even though it's a racetrack oriented mode, I just think that the throttle response, engine braking, uh, and ABS settings and everything like that are more conducive to aggressive sport riding and what I want out of a motorcycle than say some of the other modes. The dynamic mode, it has similar settings if I remember correctly, but the throttle response can just be um, a tad vague, if we'll say, kind of off that initial crack of throttle. So challenge seems to clear that up. And then of course you have the individual ride modes, which really come into their own and become important when you go to a racetrack setting where you do want to bump down that ABS, get rid of the cornering ABS, go into what we'll call a dummy or racetrack ABS mode where ABS is relegated to the front only and the IMU is disabled. So you can trail brake incredibly aggressively. Right. Disable wheelie control, you know, keep a tick or two of traction control. And for me, you're good to go. So that's where we are with the electronics. And again, you know, we got to think about the fact that the TC on this bike is well sorted, even though I'm talking about using this thing at, you know, levels one and two, it only steps in, well, probably when you need it, if we're being absolutely honest, I think, you know, with good enough tires, you're more than happy to start disabling TC. Wheelie control for me, the bike's just not powerful enough to get into those crazy, you know, leader bike level wheelies. And so even if the bike does pick up the front a little bit on a really hard driving corner exit, it's incredibly controllable again, because that tractable engine. So okay, bit of a, you know, something that a more experienced rider is probably going to want to get rid of. Whereas those intermediate coming up riders, they're going to want that safety net and then have the option to eventually disable it as they become more acclimatized, you know? And so it's a good thing to recognize. Sure. But yeah, yeah. You know, the, these types of, of rider aids, you know, as much as they're racetrack derived, um, you know, things, and they, they are really beneficial at the racetrack, uh, which we tested at, at Chuckwalla Valley Raceway with two wheels track days a while ago. You know, it, they're applicable to the street as well. On the street, I'm cranking up the nannies quite a bit because realistically, you never know what's around a corner, sand, water, ice, polar bears. I don't know. Uh, it's been pretty cold in California. So I assume we're getting some new species. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Right. And a lot, of, a lot of water. So there's probably, you know, sort of penguins and things yes, floating exactly. around as well. So yeah. Never know, not never know what's going to be around the corner. Exactly. So yeah, I, okay, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I'd imagine you're not using. I mean, somebody of your skill level, you're probably not using the traction control too much on the street. You, you know, you're you're good enough not to need it, but but it's nice to know it's there. Well, it's a, a tough thing. I think I, I'm of two minds about it because I think you end up using traction control on the street more in the sense that a racetrack is never really going to have big patches of sand or dirt or dust or mud or something, you know? So yeah, that's true. If a racetrack does have that, then in most cases, you're well aware of it. Um, whereas if you go for your average Canyon ride, twisty Canyon roads, sometimes there's debris out there. So you may come around a corner, 
discover that's something there. You scrub off some speed, go through the corner, but invariably um, you may not have the chance to react to it. There may be oil on the ground, diesel fuel, uh, you know, fairly common thing in Europe. So, well, you also get sort of, uh, you know, variable road surfaces. Exactly. I remember, I remember sort of way back when um, I was riding up the 33, actually on a Tuono, funnily enough. And I was going up the 33, and this was before they repaved a lot of it. And the surface, as you get higher up, the obviously the temperatures drop at this time of year. So you can start off down at the bottom of the 33 and everything's nice and warm. And as you start to, to climb up, the temperatures get colder and colder. The... You know, the tires are still obviously sort of nice and warm, but even so, on the colder asphalt, there is less grip without a doubt, and especially as the surface changes. And I was riding this thing, and it was getting slower and slower, and I'm like, what the heck is going on with this bike? Then I realized, of course, oh, wait a minute, what's that flashing light on the dash? And I realized I got the traction control, you know, turned up too high for, for those particular conditions. And clearly, the bike that was not slightly losing traction at, at lower levels was definitely starting to at higher levels so i mean of course you know with a prilly you've got all that on the fly you know changing of the traction control anyway which is awesome and that still applies here as well fantastic and so i just you know dialed it down a couple of couple of clicks and and then you know the bike livened up and it was great but it was quite interesting because i thought well you know what if i hadn't had that traction control you know, I, d I don't think I would have crashed, but it certainly would have been sketchier riding. That is for sure. So in the, in those sort of changeable conditions. So, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's 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 the joy of modern electronics, we'll say. Um, a a 20660 factory, a middleweight bike like that, I think, is a little less susceptible to uh, spinning up the rear at your average street paces. If you're at a more spirited pace doing your thing, then. Well, you know, hats off to you. Um, your mileage may vary. But <laughs> again, I, I, th I look at electronics kind of in different lights, different perspectives, whether I'm at the racetrack or on the street. On the street, if things step in, um, most of the time, I, I, I hope that it's justified. In your case, where you're experiencing different uh, asphalt conditions, different temperature conditions, road conditions, we'll just say weather overall, right, you go into those variable situations where day starts out nice and sunny, and then suddenly it's dumping wet, well, you're going to crank the TC up just so you can get home unscathed. And then, you know, at the racetrack, well, you want to use those electronics in a way to go as fast as you, you possibly can, your tires are able and your skill level, all of those three things working together. Whereas, if things are a little bit heavy handed on the street, that's not so much of a loss for me, but on the racetrack, if they are, then that becomes a huge problem. And that's a general statement because there are electronic systems on the market that are simply heavy handed on the road to the point where it's ridiculous. <coughs> Honda. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, I, I make that joke, but then I also think of a couple of bikes that are not that way. Right. At any rate. Um, yeah, and so electronics to me are a huge, huge selling point um, because it, it speaks to riders that that have the ability to, you know, suss out slides and really understand what the rear wheel is doing under under power or under what the front wheel is doing under heavy braking, things like that. Uh, whereas it gives the ability to sort of extend the leash for less experienced folk. And I think that's a huge benefit. Granted, in this case, you do have to pay 
pay a little bit more for it. But you know, uh, the the other motorcycles from that are that are in that that true middleweight category really really can't claim that they have the same level of sophistication here. So you know, that's what it is. And then of course you have the the standard up down quick shifter, and super handy. Uh, you know what's interesting is the RS 660s quick shifter kind of is known to put up a fight when you're really blasting those downshifts at racetrack paces. So, you know those rapid fire, ding, 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 you know, kind of downshifts into a hard braking zone. We'll say, yeah. For whatever reason, this bike seems to be geared really well for Chuck Walla. Chuck Walla is kind of a a corner friendly track. It's not really you know, there are heavy braking zones, of course, you know, depending on how fast you're going, you, things become heavy braking zones, we'll say, just just because. But really, it's a it's a technical flowy circuit. Right. You know, I, I think you'll agree. Yeah, for sure. And for whatever reason, the stock gearing here seems to work pretty well. So although it did kind of pipe up a little bit in, in some of those really aggressive downshifts, not nearly as bad as the RS660, which uh, is geared a little bit longer. So in that case, I think I'm, I might be spiking the revs on an RS a little bit higher, a little more aggressively than I would be here. I think I mentioned cruise control, which I didn't use at the racetrack. Might be kind of interesting. <laughs> to I, I like that they come with cruise control. I mean, why not? I mean, almost, almost, almost nobody lives right on a, on a canyon. So you're going to take have to take some sort of long freeway drone to get wherever it is you're going to ride. So why not have cruise control? Yeah, that's great. And one quick thing that I did forget: um, there are cornering headlights on the factory model. Oh, really? Okay. So that is standard. Now, having ridden this at night a few times, um, they actually work. Wow! I mean, it it's legitimately there. Nice touch. Okay, well, let's move on to the sort of the chassis and the handling and the suspension. I guess the burning question is, is, is the upgraded suspension actually a noticeable difference? You know, it's been some time since I've ridden the base model, but thinking back to that bike, riding some of the same roads, I can say pretty confidently that yes, absolutely. When I think about just riding this bike in a standalone story and thinking about it without any comparison to anything that I, I haven't ridden in, you know, X amount of months, you're looking at a motorcycle that weighs in at a little bit below 400 pounds. I think it's a pound or two just below 400 pounds, which is pretty light, you know, especially when you're making it a good amount of horsepower, like a hundred, hundred HP. Right. So you got a really good, you know, power to weight ratio. Then of course you have better damping characteristics out of the fork because it is now using both legs instead of just one, the other leg would just be loaded with your, you know, your, your general uh, fork oil and spring and just be kind of chilling, not doing a whole lot. Whereas the other one has the cartridge and damping and blah, blah, blah. So right off the top, just on paper, you know that it's going to be able to outperform that in some, some regard. And, you know, dialing in the suspension is easy enough. The only sort of kind of annoying thing about adjusting your suspension on the Tuono is that you do have to pull off one of the little side panels um, underneath the seat to get to the the, uh, the rebound circuit on the shock, but it's done quickly enough to the point after you do it the first time, it just, you just kind of learn to do it um, because it is kind of buried underneath the, the, the subframe. 
Um, and again, it's a tight, light, compact bike. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the price of having a motorcycle. that's significantly lighter than most things on the market. Um, so yeah, that, you know, at $500 above the base price, you're getting an upgraded fork that in my opinion gives really good braking stability. You know, when you get on the brakes, it's not moving around excessively. It doesn't feel like it's, it's collapsing, you know, under those braking forces. And you can also tune it for just casual street riding to the point where it is nice and comfortable. You're not just getting beat up over the road as you go along. And the shock is the same story. And interestingly, I feel like this bike is one of the few bikes, few middleweight bikes, I should actually specify, that were that were sort of sprung and damped for someone of my weight. So the average American weight, you know, someone that's in that 175 to 195 range. Usually on the middleweight Japanese motorcycles, they tend to be sprung a bit light. This isn't, this is not the case. This is a serious, serious bike. Right. And it's, you know, meant to do so. So the shock, it eats up everything nicely. Again, you'll feel some of those hard edged hits through the shock more, mainly because of that firmer damping. It's sprung and damped kind of on the sportier side to really keep things stable when you're accelerating. Um, you know, and going through corners with, you know, G outs and things like that. Obviously that's not an issue at the racetrack. It just kind of carves in, you know, as you need. And what I really like about the Tono is how nicely it steers when you're trail braking. So as you're, you're, you're really getting into that maximum braking for your turn, skill, speed, whatever. And you're putting that input into the bars and tipping in. If you're starting to run wide, you can just kind of correct it a bit, add some input, really focus on your apex and it just kind of goes there now if you look at my photos you'll think this man is a liar he's never seen an apex <laughs> in his life but i assure you i hit one once i have to say the track photos look really good i mean you're clearly carrying some decent speed and the bike looks like it does handle well you know for 500 bucks to upgrade the suspension i would say that's definitely worth doing anybody that's going to even take it to the occasional track day it's worth it yeah, I, I think it's a benefit for the street, like you said. Um, you know, again, the, the price point then does bring it to $11,000. So it, it puts it in that upper echelon of what we'll say is the middleweight, quote unquote, motorcycle category. So it's really, you know, uh, priced up with your MTO9 SPs and things like that. But again, it's offering a different experience. It's completely different engine displacement. So Aprilia is really focusing on doing something separate from the rest of the market um, and then supplementing our track experience we ran the Dunlop Sportmax Q5S it's a great tire uh, it's more of a we'll say an aggressive sport touring tire uh, more than capable of a, a a cheeky track day rip we'll say but it's a multi-compound tire right so you get ample mileage and it essentially has the edge grip of a Super Corsa V3, uh, if I'm remembering that correctly. The last time we reviewed it was like four years ago or something. Now, for the racetrack, we went with the, the very new Dunlop Sportmax Q5S. And that is a direct replacement for the popular Q3 Plus. Uh, it is a multi-compound tire in the rear specifically. In the front, still a single compound tire, 
has a pretty aggressive profile overall. So that really amps up the Tuono's already very nimble handling that we've chimed in on quite a bit. Of course, you have that soft compound rubber. It's really meant for aggressive street riding and track riding overall. The S in the rear has that multi-compound specifically and, and a slightly different construction from the Q5, which is a Q4 replacement, not to turn this conversation into alphabet soup, but uh, the Q5 offers a little bit more stiffness than the Q5, and it is far softer than a lot of the dumb ops that I've used in the past. In fact, this updated Q5 and Q5S range of tires is significantly softer overall in terms of carcass and, and rubber compound than previous Dunlops that I've used. It's not quite going into that Pirelli zone just yet, um, but it is stepping in the softer direction. And in my opinion, that's a good thing. You get a lot of grip in the front on you know, heavy trail braking, good bump absorption. And you know, overall, it's just, it's a tire that doesn't need tire warmers. You go out rip all day after, you know, a handful of corners, you know, we'll, we'll, for the sake of um, being safe, go and rip a nice opening casual lap. And then after that, you'll, you should be up to pace and uh, you don't need tire warmers. Do your thing, go and ride all day in the canyons, do whatever you need to do. It is a street legal racetrack friendly tire and the q5 takes that even a step further anyway just just before you get off the subject of tires i mean was there plenty of feel i mean did you have some decent feedback yeah of course um you know it, it, the q5s is the more road oriented in that that sure. dunlop uh, q5 family um but it, it's not too far off from the true top dog which is the Q5 single compound front and back. Um, right. It, the, the feeling is quite similar. The the feedback you get from the tires is good. Again, you get a lot of a lot of just raw feedback, road feel from the tire. So that's very typical of Dunlop, and that was a result of that harder con uh, carcass design. Really put a lot of energy through the chassis. So despite the fact that these tires are much softer than previous Dunlops that I've used you haven't really lost that characteristic completely. You're still getting good feedback. You still understand when you're going over abrasive road services, say, sure. you know, one of the photos that's, that's actually in the story, there's a strange sort of kind of bit of asphalt as you're tipping in and crossing over to the apex. And it, you can definitely feel that. Whereas, you know, on, a, on other race tires, uh, sometimes some of that gets muffled. Um, right. Sure. And, you know, things aren't so soft that it's squidgy and smearing under acceleration and things like that. You know, it still maintains its composure. And again, it's a tr pretty much trouble-free tire from start to finish. You don't have to use tire warmers. You're just sort of good to go. All right, good. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a Dunlop guy, as you know. So, uh, so I fully expect the Q5s to be just, you know, a, a step up. Um, okay, so back to the Aprilia then. What else is there to talk about? What are the ergonomics like? Well, I suppose we should talk about the brakes before we go into ergonomics. What are, what are the brakes like? Yeah, you know, the, the brakes are are quite good. Um, you're using some older Brembo spec, but really don't, don't raise your nose at them. Uh, stopping a bike of this weight, you get good feel. Um, 
radial mounted calipers, also a radial master cylinder. Again, when you compare that to the Japanese stuff, it's just really not on par. It's a much more mature riding experience overall in terms of that front brake feel. Um, you know, talking about the ABS intervention with cornering ABS on a, we'll say someone that's on the upper part of the B group, A group riders, they'll probably be triggering ABS and you'll want to go and go into that sort of um, uh, front only ABS mode that I mentioned earlier. That's going to be more your style. You cannot disable ABS per Euro 5 rules. That's something we've known for, you know, little while now yeah brake feel is good and i think you could even step it up with some some better better brake pads things like that of course you do get uh steel braided lines again you know a nice little thing uh just to have because it improves feel and uh, reduces brake fade um sure but as but as it stands they've got they've got a nice initial bite and plenty of feel lots of power yeah not too aggressive it has a a sporting enough bite all right well moving right along um ergonomics it's a two ono, so yeah, it looks great. It looks very comfortable. What do you think? It is. You know, overall, the bike feels a bit smaller. Um, when you're actually sitting in the motorcycle, it feels like a proper full-size bike. However, when I look at photos, I realize that, yes, it is, well, not as big as a two V4, and that makes sense. It is compact. <laughs> yeah. It looks, it looks a good size, though. I mean, it does not look, you know, small and, and diminutive. I mean, it, it looks like a... Looks like it's a real motorcycle. Exactly. And it gives that mature feeling from the cockpit. Whereas when you ride some of the lower displacement bikes, some of the entry-level bikes, they can often feel, well, just a little bit too small. You know what I mean? They feel yeah. a bit toy-like. And this yeah. isn't the case here. Again, I'm going to go back to that twin spar aluminum chassis. I'm going to go back to the sure. fit and finish of everything. It feels like a proper mature bike. You know what I mean? Yeah. Despite the yeah, fact that I it do. is a middleweight, but again, it's that middleweight with an asterisk where it's a performance middleweight. So not, not really the same thing as, you know, your MT-07s, Ninja 650s, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I, th I think non-motorcycle people would look at it and they wouldn't realize that it's not a liter bike. Yeah. I think you have to be sort of somewhat, you know, know what you're looking at to go, oh, wait a minute, that's a middleweight. Yeah. And that, that's sort of the beauty of it, right? Like, you know, when you look at some entry-level bikes, you're like, well, that is clearly not the CBR 1000. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't have that sort of panache and stance and style. Whereas this bike definitely does. Um, you know, sitting in it, it's a very casual riding position. Of course, you know, it's right. upright, has upright handlebars, really nice reach for my five foot, 10 inch frame and a very comfy seat. You don't have too much knee bend. And despite the fact that, you know, it has a 32.3 inch seat height, which on paper, it's not too high, but it is getting up there a little bit. The motorcycle overall is pretty thin. So sure. it's very narrow. You can get your boots on the ground easily. I can get my knee or sorry, not my knees. <laughs> well, at the racetrack, I get my knees on the ground, but um, I can get my boots on the deck with room to spare. So if you're a shorter rider, you know, getting down into the five, six, five, five range, you're still probably going to be able to get your feet on the ground with some sense of stability. You might be tiptoeing, but right. you know, okay. Uh, it's, you know, not like trying to get on a gigantic adventure bike or something like that. Sure. So yeah, you know, comfort wise, it is obviously built for the street and a naked motorcycle is going to take a lot of weight off your wrists and you don't have 
you know, cramped, uh, you know, you're not, you're not getting cramped in the knees. There's not too much knee bends, you know, stuff like, like I mentioned before, it's just overall a very comfortable motorcycle and how that translates at the performance end of the spectrum. Like you're not using a motorcycle that uses clip on handlebars. So yes, you are, aren't as connected to the front end, but you still get good feedback from the front. It's still a very sporting motorcycle that's translated the moment you get on the bike. And you've still got plenty of weight on the front. So, so you're not, you're not losing feel. Exactly. Yeah. If you ride an RS 660 versus a 20660, you will feel a slight difference, but it's not, right. you know, we're talking shades of a color, not, not jumping to the other side of the color wheel. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. But yeah, overall, you know, the, the Aprilia 20660 factory really does step up the game for the 20660. Like, like I said, there's only a handful of changes, upgraded fork, fully adjustable shock, some of the standard electronic options, or sorry, the optional electronic accessories are now standard. And then of course you have the, uh, the tail covering, the solo tail covering, and those round out the changes. Yeah, look, looks good. And you think, okay, well, for 500 bucks, if I were to upgrade my suspension on a base, well, you'd be spending more than that anyway. So, you know, if, if you are the more sporty rider um, and you do see track days in your future and you really want a 2660, then I would say the factory is for you. If your only concern is riding on the street, and that's just not really a thing. You just want something that's that's inherently sporty to begin with. Okay, then the base model might might make more sense for you in particular. My money, I'm going for the factory, but that's just me. Like I said, you know, there's a handful of you know kind of little things that I wish would get worked out, like that flat spot. You know, the quick shifter. I wish you could really just wail on it. You know, but uh, you know that's that's the way it the way it is um sure. overall the bike is incredibly impressive offers a lot of different features and uh still pretty enamored with the middleweight aprilia platform it's just a fun bike to ride whether you're at the track or in the canyons or just cruising to the store yeah it it looked like it it really does look like it yeah all right okay awesome hey thank you so much i appreciate your your time and and insight into the uh the aprilia 660 factory yep Our guest segment of Motos and Friends is brought to you by the faster and most technologically advanced 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. It's one of the most iconic sport bikes ever. Check it out in person at your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In this segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with arguably one of the most interesting Suzuki race riders of all time. Steve Stavros Parrish was a Suzuki 500cc MotoGP factory rider in the mid-1970s. He campaigned the iconic RG500 alongside teammate double world champion Barry Sheen. Those two were almost as famous for their exploits off track as for their success on it. Those were the days. Steve also raced the Isle of Man TT for about 10 years, where he won 13 silver replicas and got a podium finish. His insight into that particular brand of mayhem is fascinating. But there's way more to Steve Parrish than his motorcycle racing. He is also the most successful semi-truck racer ever. And 
little-known piece of useless trivia, he's my birthday twin, 24th of February. Steve is a natural entertainer, and you can't miss his recounting of the world's most entertaining and arguably terrifying double-decker bus ride ever. If any of you were actually on that hell ride, then we'd love to hear from you. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bi-directional quick shifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, it comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. I'm not far from Cambridge, about eight miles from uh, west of Cambridge is where I was born and bred, uh, lived here most of my life, spent 10 years living in the Isle of Man, but then back to uh, home grounds. Nice. I, I'm injured. I, mean, I, sh I shot myself today. I shot my, I shot my TV and I got a ricochet, came back and got me. <laughs> Hence the big splat on your nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It must have been a bad film or something. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I was fed up with the TV over Christmas, so I shot the telly. <laughs> I'm sure the rest of the family are delighted. <laughs> oh, we've got, we've got another one. <laughs> Excellent. So you were racing motorcycles from 1977 to 1985 and uh, won the ACU solo title in the British Motorcycle Championship. And for those who don't know, the ACU is the Autocycle Union, which is the governing body for... Great Britain um, affiliated. That's right. Yeah, affiliated. Not, not that they're very good at doing it, but they are the official governing body for our um, for motorcycle racing. Yeah. Right. But uh, but they're not very good at doing it. But never mind. <laughs> Must try harder. I, they're affiliated with the FIM. That's who people here in uh, America and USA would be familiar with. Yeah. And sure. you raced the world championship on the Suzuki RG500 alongside teammate Barry Sheen. This is like this is your life, isn't it? And then back to <laughs> back to British riding, winning the ACU 500cc Gold Star Championship, and then two times winner of the British Shell 500 title, plus winning the Liter Class British Superbike title. Yes. Wow. Yes. Is that all true? <laughs> I've cunningly kept out of a proper job for 47 years. <laughs> Just slipped into racing. I slipped into ducking and diving and doing everything to do with racing and it didn't have to be motorbikes, it was cars and trucks and commentating and 
generally just keeping out of a proper job and I'm quite proud of that actually. It's funny how people I speak to have ridden motorcycles with their lives think that they haven't really worked. It's because you enjoy it so much. <laughs> yeah, I think probably anybody that can make a living out of their hobby is a very lucky person, aren't they? And, and that would sure. apply to, I guess, football, tennis, you name it. I mean, even if you've got a business that you love doing, then it's not what you call a proper job, is it? But for, certainly for me, riding motorbikes that started off as a bit of fun and I've ended up at the ripe old age of coming up to 70 and still involved with it all. So yeah, very oh, well. Didn't know you were that young. <laughs> oh yeah, I am that young. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I would be older, but my mum was shy. <laughs> I like that. So you were racing always for Suzuki? No, not at all. I mean, I started off, you said like race from 77. I actually uh, started amateur club racing in 1973. So that was just for fun and, you know, like a, um, a bunch of mates and we'd head off down to Brands Hatch or Donington or Snetterton or somewhere like that and have fun. And then then things got more and more serious. And, and that, as you rightly said, I signed for Suzuki's or they signed me up and started paying me some money for the first time. I used to sort of um, go to work as a tractor mechanic and spend every penny I had on my, my little old bikes and things. And then all of a sudden I... I got paid to do it and um, that sort of went on for probably, yeah, about 10 years. I finished racing at the end of 86, bikes, ran my own team. That seemed a normal progression, really. I had excellent sponsorship with an American company, actually, Loctite, who were an adhesives company, but they had a, a big um, a base over here and they supported my team. Um, and I did that for another five years and then truck racing turned up, which is something that everyone thinks it's American, but I don't think you ever have big, these are like semi-trucks. No, I'm not familiar with it. I'm not familiar with it. Going back to just, sorry to interrupt you, but you mentioned Loctite. You won't remember this, of course, because in those glorious days, there were many beautiful girls around in the pits, etc. but I was a paddock girl. I did work for Loctite and I did meet you on the stand once. They were based near me, Welling Garden City, uh, where their head office was over in the UK here. Um, and, and I, I guess um sounds wrong really, but I got really friendly with the managing director. He became my, my daughter's godfather and that, that kind of sealed the sponsorship deal, I guess you could say, but kept it all going. But but yeah, then truck racing happened and that went on for another ten years and then commentary kind of kicked in. I did a lot of time travelling the world covering MotoGP for, for BBC here. Uh still do a little bit for them for certain things and then um now still doing that really i have my own theater show i've written a book so i'm kind of busy doing lots of bits and pieces yeah you've got the gift of the gab sort of yeah i'm starting to more, the older i get the more i'm playing golf and tennis because i'm doing less and less work but i think i've done enough really yeah but i, I do love what i'm doing I, i've been recently two weeks hosting the main motorcycle show over here which takes place uh, any no, the national exhibition center at birmingham um, I'm off to South Africa in two weeks' time to ride some classic bikes uh, down there, uh, which I've been doing for many years. Um, so getting away from the English winters. Nice. Um, and still having fun. I think you're kidding yourself that you're slowing down. You haven't actually... <laughs> well, I haven't compared to what I was. I mean, at one point, genuinely, uh, I had a manic life of running, a, running my own team, commentating on not only motorcycles, uh, on the Red Bull air races and truck racing and sort of trying to dovetail those all together. So there was a period of my life, probably would have been late 80s, early 90s, I was running line like a blue ass fly, I think they say. Yeah, that's my mother's expression. <laughs>
massively busy and of course trying to juggle a family as well yes and what people don't see is that with all of that sort of lifestyle you've got a huge amount of traveling which is time consuming yeah oh yeah massively particularly when you're doing a lot of long haul stuff we'd spend sometimes six weeks away by doing the malaysian grand prix japanese grand prix australian grand prix kind of all strung together so you'd be away for a long long time yes yeah but anyway i was complaining i was still enjoying myself doing it and you you sort of get fed up with it but then when it stops you kind of miss it as well a little bit there's an element of that isn't it i mean we're human beings we kind of always don't like what we're doing and wish we were doing what we were that's right it's always good to have a bit of a whinge but then it's gone and you're a bit bereft <laughs> yeah exactly so how did you very first get into actually riding motorcycles did you have a road bike a street bike yep uh loved motorbikes or loved anything with an engine from a very young age um just as kids do i lived out in the countryside didn't go to school as much as i probably should have done or my, <laughs> my mother mother wished i had my, my poor old pop father died of passed away when i was 12 so he kind oh, of missed young. out of my hooligan years but yeah i used to just love riding bikes around the fields or driving cars or anything um then got a road bike when i was 16 years old massively fortunate not to have killed myself riding those around on the roads like some kind of loop as, as lots of youngsters you know pretty dangerous times but in fact when i first started riding didn't even have to wear a crash helmet that's how old i am and you could ride you could ride anything you could just stick an l plate on and ride well in back in my day up to two i'm a bit younger up to 250 cc it's quite astounding when you think back i i, I two weeks after my 16th birthday i did my license and and had a 650 BSA or something like that. Yeah, pretty crazy times. Anyway, um, hooked up with a load of friends um, at a local pub, and we decided instead of having a darts team or a pool team, we'd have a motorcycle team. And as I was um, probably the least talented as far as engineering, paint spraying, mechanical knowledge, uh, I was designated as the rider. And I was probably the fastest guy on the road anyway, so I, that's how it ended up. But it's just. Um, serendipity really isn't it sometimes you're just lucky isn't it funny yeah, yeah and i never expected to make a living out of racing motorbikes never crossed my mind at that time but it just sort of gelled and happened yeah so were you racing that road bike or did you club together no, um, one of the guys that was part of the pub group i guess he had more money than the rest of us. he had his own little business uh, repairing lawnmowers so he uh, he's kind of sponsored it really or he he paid for the the race team, so or, or right. paid for the bike. So I kind of early sponsorship, albeit that it was a you know it wasn't a particularly good bike, but it was better than I could afford. Awesome. So you've probably guessed that I'm originally from England, London. Where where are you based now in the states? Um, we're near Los Angeles, just a little way um, uh -huh. east. It feels like north east along the coast, near a place called Camarillo. Okay, yes, yeah, it's, it's a lovely area. Um, a great area down there. I used to go to visit Oakley. Sunglasses were based down at the end of the country, and uh, yes. I'd head over there. I had I had some association with them back in the day, so we'd go down there and have some friends that live um, in that area. Yeah, so very nice. And and again, I covering the Red Bull Air Races a bit further north at San Francisco. Right. Yeah, it is beautiful here. You know, I can't complain at all. No, 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 no. you shouldn't because it's. Uh, well, it's actually warm here for this time of the year. It's 10, 12 degrees, which is tropical for this time of the year. As you well know, two or three weeks ago, we were minus four degrees and snow. So anyway, it's slightly brighter at the moment. 
but the roads here are great for riding we have some fantastic roads and not too much action from the cops you know they're really tolerant uh, i think it's very motorcycle friendly here you say they're tolerant but i got busted out there myself actually I... well you must have been very naughty <laughs> I, no, I didn't think I was. In fact, it's a different rule you have out there. I'd actually just been to the Oakley uh, factory um, uh, up the road from there and Triumph America loaned me a bike because uh, I had a connection with Triumphs over here. And I was riding around with my wife on the back or girlfriend at the time. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to filter. So I got some traffic uh. lights and I just went to the front. As That's why I ride motorbikes mainly, just so I don't have to queue up yes. and get into traffic. And anyway, the the bike cop that was there went berserk pulled me over and we got chatting and stuff and in the end we got talking about racing motorbikes and i was involved and we had our pictures taken and he let me go so that was See, easy motorcycle guys it's all friendly um you can filter now here in california and about four other states yeah i heard that they've changed mm. right they've changed the rules i mean i mean i have to say i, I am not uh what i'd call a road rider i don't go off on trips and motorbikes because A, I'm busy doing other things and B, uh, I just want to get there as quick as I possibly can and I've got a little aeroplane, so I use that if I can. <laughs> That's cool. The main reason I would ride a bike is particularly going into London so I can miss the traffic and you know you can duck and dive and things like that. That's I use a bike for um, the purposes that it is best suited to me and that would be going to the airport, going to London, going into the traffic and things like that but i have never ever in my life been on a long bike tour it's funny isn't it yeah it is you'd be surprised i don't know what the american riders are like but a vast majority of british motorcycle racers top quality racers have never got their riding driving license or riding license yeah i remember barry sheen saying i think he just had done one ride on the road around putney or something scared the crap out of himself <laughs> yeah a lot of the young guys never do it and unless they need to for their job, you know, riding, demonstrating or something like that. But I guess, you know, we just used motorbikes to go as fast as we could around a racetrack and riding on the road wasn't an option or didn't didn't fit into the didn't occur to you, yeah, didn't didn't need to. So what part of your racing career stands out the most for you? I mean, you had all the partying days when you were partnering up with Barry Sheen, double trouble you guys. Um I think you were called Jumbo back then, but now it's Stavros. <laughs> yep, I was called Jumbo in, a, in the very early days, probably before I, in fact, before I met Barry, it was my sort of school name because I was the right little porker. Yeah, I had an overactive knife and fork. So I, I was a little fat kid. And anyway, as soon as I finished school, which was about 14 or 15, because I got expelled. We all assumed it was some other Jumbo reason, but I won't go there. No, 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 no. Well, it could be that as well. Um, <laughs> and the Stavros came because Barry saw a picture of me being a fat little kid and I had fairly long curly hair um, and there used to be a TV show called Kojak and in in the TV show of Kojak there was a fat bloke with curly hair called Stavros and so that's <laughs> I remember it well <laughs> nickname came from and it kind of stuck from there really yeah in the in the motorcycle industry that's Stavros is me and people, I get this little email sometimes oh what part of Greece are you from I'm, I'm not you know. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, your, your question was best time, um, and you've it. it was really the 70s, it was great time. There just seemed to be, um, you know, I didn't even know what was going on in the world. I was so wrapped up in traveling around the world with Barry and having lots of fun riding bikes and lots of pretty grid girls and all the fun and frivolities that went on in those days when you were allowed to muck around, you were allowed to 
be a normal person without someone getting down your neck and saying you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. Loved it to bits. I'm finding this world we live in now quite difficult. Yeah, it's just all getting too intense. And I agree. I think we actually need some rascally characters these days on the grid. You know, MotoGP, we need a few little cheeky guys. And I saw a comment on one of your posts on Instagram from T.H1964, Trevor Horton. Um, and he put the Barry Sheens and James Hunts are what a lot of sport is missing nowadays. It's all too corporate and clinical. Not only were they charismatic characters, but they were mavericks. And I agree with that. I think a lot of fun went on that uh, added to the enjoyment. I just think it's uh, it's all too controlled. Yeah, I mean, are you allowed to now? That, that's, and I do feel a little sorry for the modern day guys. I don't feel sorry for the, probably the top guys there. Um, salary checks or contract fees because they're they're doing a great job and they're earning lots of money but they are not allowed to be characters people keep yeah i've heard the same as you where's the next character there'll never be another character in sport i doubt if we will ever see a character like we used to see because it's yes. sucked out of them as soon as they're i don't know i just, I, I was just funny enough i was reading an article on casey stoner it was a in a book actually a guy called matt oxley wrote it and there was a big story about Casey Stoner, who's uh, Casey Stoner to me was one of the greatest racers I've ever watched. Australian, um, awkward sod he was to work with when I was covering MotoGP. He just didn't want to get involved with the press and he hated everyone that was asking questions. But he could never be a character. You know, at the age of six, or, no, 18 months he was put on a motorbike. By the age of six, he was racing. He was traveling around with his parents till he was 13, traveled with the UK with his parents, lived in a caravan, with his parents until he was 17, went to Spain into an academy, went into another kind of world, I guess, where he had a psychiatrist and a dietitian, and then you've got somebody training you. It's almost robotic. There's no life there. You're never going to have a shag behind the bus shelter, are you, at school? No, so never. These things that build characters have been taken out of pretty much every sportsman now because you have to be a champion by 10 years old or, or you know showing you skill and then you're taken out of what I call the real world and made into a homogenized being so tragically mm. in my in the world I see top sportsmen will not be characters they'll be beings you know people that can do what they do at the best level yeah I think you're right unfortunately so you've also been inducted into the circuit Dijon have I said that correctly hall of fame yeah but very very better than i would have said yeah circuit dijon um uh, yeah I was quite recently and that was from a truck racing exploit so i won more races there than lots of people back in the days um, when i was driving for mercedes-benz so yeah recently been down there and they uh they looked after us extremely well we visited some lovely vineyards drank lots of nice red wine met up with some of the great old race formula one drivers like jackie x and people like that giacomo agostini was down there and all the famous people that raced at Dijon, and it was a, a lovely trip. Congratulations! That's of course, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's nice, and and, and it, it's a great circuit now. It didn't used to be; they've changed it a lot. It's um, really been upgraded um, in a lovely part of France. So, um, yeah, great, good fun, good fun. So, a bit more about the trucks. What size engines, for instance? Right. Well, truck racing over here, and I, and I have to say, in the early nineties it was the biggest spectator sport in europe out doing motor gp out doing formula one the races that i raced at 
in particularly somewhere like Hockenheim or, or Nürburgring in Germany, 300,000 people would turn up for the weekend. It was just enormous um, because it's such a big industry, I guess, and I, I'm sure it is in the States. But anyway, somebody devised this way of putting semi-trucks, you call them, we call them Arctics or whatever, um, and stripping them down, putting big engines in them or tuning them up and watching them go around the track. And to start with, they were fairly standard type of trucks, but they progressed really quickly. Mercedes-Benz, who I drove for, used it for the development of the diesel engine back then. And by the end of my truck racing career in 2001, and the reason I stopped is Mercedes withdrew from the sport, the truck I drove was probably about one point million pounds worth of truck. It had 2,200 brake horsepower, seven, yeah, seven and a half thousand Newton meters of torque. And if you lined it up beside a 911 turbo Porsche, probably one of the fastest cars on the road, it would leave it by about three seconds to 100 miles an hour. That's astounding. I'm sure not many people would know that. It was. They were very spectacular, really spectacular. But as I say, they kind of, um, I think the manufacturers realised that they'd used up the development mm. possibilities, the hospitality possibilities possibility so for 10 years it was a huge sport and i loved it one of the main reasons i liked it i didn't keep going to hospital <laughs> yeah you're in a cage well as we call them yeah yeah the problem with most bikes is you get waking up in some weird hospital bed in assen in holland or wherever it might be you know with a busted leg or arm or whatever whereas i found truck racing and car racing for that matter it's uh, considerably less um less likely to get injured yeah more gentle on the body so when you look at the trucks they look a bit out of not out of proportion but they're, they're tall they look you know, top tall heavy things. you're right do they, do they handle well they do look top heavy like they get they might tipple over if you're going fast around the bend well they, they don't, i mean they look like that but they're not like that because the engine's in the middle and it's really low down so they kind of the, the the deal with truck racing is it had to be um, um a standard looking vehicle that came from the factory because that's what they were trying to sell um same with you know living in the world of motorcycling and i often say this to people that kind of yeah you're right but we all think that people go around racing motorbikes um you know in my era mick Doohan and barry sheen and kenny roberts and wayne rainey and all those guys. we think that yamaha for instance go racing to go racing and win all those races they actually go and racing to sell motorbikes yes, aren't they yeah that's it that's where the comes from Truck racing was to sell more trucks and for Mercedes-Benz to do that. So physically, truck racing was like superbikes. The kind of the outside look of it should look the same, but internally it was a lot different. So the trucks we were racing had really low engines. They never tipped over because the, the weight was all down low and they had special electronic systems that stopped them wheel spinning too much and special braking systems and, and whatever. But, but racing is easily forgotten that it's not there just to go racing, it's there to sell a product. Yeah, for development. Benefits everybody, you know, safety, etc. You know, just to a certain extent, football is probably completely different. But if you look at a lot of sports, I mean, the golf industry survives on the fact that flipping every idiot like me goes out and buys a new set of golf clubs, don't they, every, every year? or They lose 10, 10 balls every time they go out. So in some ways, golf is there and it's a great sport and I like watching it and that's, I get really annoyed playing it. But, you know... A lot of sports that we see, they're driven by the fact that they sell products. Yes, yeah, you're right. So how did you feel when you're racing the truck? It must be like a really powerful type of feeling because it's such a huge machine. 
It, it was. It was great. I'd, I'd say, I'd, Arston, hand on my heart, motorcycle racing was my true love. That was what I loved and, and what I'm still involved with more so now. But it was an extension to my career where I could carry on being involved racing competitively, but physically able to do it. Because quite frankly, there's one or two odd exceptions, but quite honestly, by the time you're 35 years old racing motorbikes, you should be thinking about stopping. Uh, okay, Valentino Rossi went on a bit longer, but probably wished he maybe hadn't. <laughs> the one example, yes. I think you're burnt out in some ways. You're also not as supple. You break easier. Mm. Uh, you've lost you've lost some of that, to, or you've gained fear, lost some of that fear that you didn't have as kids and youngsters don't have. Um, and, and and as I say, you get you end up in hospital a lot. So it, for me, it was a progression where I could actually carry on racing for another ten years after my sort of sell by date on, on a motorcycle. So it was great, absolutely splendid. Because otherwise, I, I'm sure. In fact, I know coming down from a career of of any kind of sport, and that the same that applies to football, rugby, tennis, golf, motorbikes, car racing. When you stop, boy, do you miss it! I bet you yeah. really do. It's hard to stop, particularly if you've done reasonably well, because all of a sudden you've spent your life going around waving to the crowds at the end of the race, standing on the podium, spraying champagne, having lots of people follow you and patting you on the back and telling you what good you've done. And then all of a sudden, wham, bam, you're at home putting the kids to bed or whatever you might be doing as a family man and mowing the grass and missing those wonderful days. So I was able to tail it off a bit because, it, it, you know, for my motorcycle race, I was able to carry on racing for another 10 years so i feel very pleased and honored to have been able to do that yeah that was a good good move i mean race races have racings in your blood i mean and so i i i'm not like that i'm not competitive but i can understand that you would miss it absolutely because that's you are a different breed you have that drive yeah and you miss being competitive in things don't you you know i mean you've spent your mm. life running around being hugely competitive and doing everything you possibly can, keep yourself fit, keep yourself mentally fit and everything else. And, and often career ends in motorbikes with injury, often, sadly yes. enough. You, you end up breaking your leg or something like that in the latter twilight period. And who wants to re-sign you when you're 38 years old, just got over a broken leg and whatever, whatever. So often motorcycle racing, uh, the, your career will end with an injury. And it's, you know. Yeah not the greatest way to come out of the sport. And then all of a sudden you're left in the big wide world at 40 years old and not really a career behind you or not really a, a, um, a talent behind you. You know, you don't know how to build houses or do whatever. Yeah, that's that's often the case. You don't have another um, mm. marketable skill. I mean, I find that with guys like yourselves that you have a lot of other talents, not necessarily marketable things that are able to earn you money or give you another career. But um, interesting other in interests. I mean, you do other stuff, I guess. I do, but um, at, at 40 years old, you can't just go doing things you like doing. You have to earn a living, you know, unless you've stashed a shitload of money away somewhere, you've got to have an income. Um, and some people find that very difficult to to hone those skills that they've had riding motorbikes. And, and you're right, most people have got a fair indication of what life's about, but they haven't got what a lot of their mates and, and I, I could name you two or three people that I know very, very well that have been motorcycle racers, been very successful, haven't ended up with a massive pot of money. That they're going to live for the rest of their life. Their friends of their age that come out of school, gone to college, have all got businesses that are, are doing very nicely or they've got a very good job where they continue earning. Yeah, there's a lot of people um, that come out of a sport 
uh, that really get a bit depressed. I mean, it's quite common to get depression when you come out of sport. First thing that a lot of people do is come and buy a motorcycle shop, which is, you know, not always the best industry, but you can make it last for two or three years. And then all of a sudden people don't want to come to your shop because you're ex-champion. They want to go where it's cheapest. Footballers go and buy a pub or something and drink themselves stupid. And so sport, sports people can get very depressed when it comes to an end. So you've you've managed actually skillfully to keep yourself involved and, and keep your career going. And I saw that you're involved in Movo Bike. That's a tracking device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell yeah. us a bit about that. Well, it's a, a, like a, a tracking device that goes on cars, motorbikes go on whatever it wants. And it's the way, way the world is now. It's a bit of a spy in the cab, I guess you can say. Um, but for motorbikes, unlike cars and vans, I mean, a lot of vans and trucks will have a system in it that will monitor what they're up to so that the boss can see that they're not going home for two hours at lunchtime and, and, and finishing work at three o'clock in the afternoon. But for motorbikes, Movobike is a system that you can plug into your laptop or your phone or whatever and, and look at the journey where you've been. You can see how your motorcycle's performing. It'll even tell your wife or girlfriend or mother that if you've had a tumble and you're in a ditch somewhere, it's kind of a little spy in the cab. Yeah, that's very useful. I had that happen to a friend of mine, yeah. so yeah, that, that you can use um, realistically to to monitor what you've been up to. It's also a theft device because you can just set it so that if it moves outside a, a ringed area, your garage or your property, you know that someone's been moving it around. It can tell if the battery's going flat, those type of things. So um, it's, yeah, it's a black box, really. We used to talk about black boxes in aeroplanes. That was the thing that, yes. that nobody else had, but now you pretty much every person seems to have a black box in their car or van or truck or whatever that tells them what's going on. So that's one of the things that, um, that I'm involved with, but I also, um, I do quite a lot of now accident investigation work, uh, motorcycle racing. Um, right. And that's really, I work for insurance companies when there's been a claim, somebody claiming, you know, you, you get a, a no win, no fee kind of situation where someone's claiming against possibly a circuit or possibly a, a manufacturer. And they really need someone's experience to know how that accident actually unfolded as opposed to what people what people write, you know, we've, we've all read it, haven't you? I was driving down a road and this, this, um, this house came out in front of me, that type of thing. So my, my job in this, this world is to, to um, really describe and, and, and uh, write a report on how this accident occurred. Yeah, there are many situations where, although, as you say, you think it's straightforward and you've got witnesses and then it ends up completely confusing. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And people, yeah. Um, you know, people want, uh, we're, we're in a blameless society now, aren't we? I mean, if I mm. go down a road and fall off my motorbike, I'll probably say uh, what an idiot I am. But most people say, oh, well, there was, uh, there was something on the road, there was oil on the road, or there was a pothole, or there was a this, or you trip up down the pavement and someone blames the pavement. It's very litigious, always somebody to sue, yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That mm. keeps me quite busy. Uh, my theatre shows, I've been doing about 10 of those a year, travelling around the country doing that. Are they the mad tours or is that something different? Yeah. I, yes, no, that's the yeah. mad tours. So tell us yeah. a bit about those. We, we do, generally it's done, uh, I don't know how it works in the States, but you find theatres in lots of towns, pretty much every reasonable sized town has a theatre, sometimes the bigger towns have lots. Um, and then we strike a deal where we do an 80-20 split or something, we get 80%, they get 20 they sell the tickets. I turn up there, do the show, two-hour show, um, and it's this is the tenth year that we've been doing it. Uh, it was originally called the Mad Tour because it was hosted by my daughter. It's done. It's kind of a 
well, it's not a film, but it's a lot of pictures, a lot of videos of stuff that's gone on throughout my life, hosted by my daughter. So the MAD for my adolescent dad. That was the MAD. <laughs> Excellent. That's cool. It's also a bit of a mad show. But then, unfortunately, my lovely daughter, Francesca, went to live in Geneva, left me without a host. <laughs> so um, I ended up asking my wife to do it. And we've kept the MAD, and it now stands for My Arsehole Darling. <laughs> Great. So anyway, but, but we're, we're winding that down now, uh, A, because we've been pretty much around the country about three times, I think. That's brilliant. What a great opportunity to, for people to see you live and, you know, get a real feel for your personality. Yeah, I know it's been, been really, been really successful, been very, very pleased with it. And, and ironically, my book came off the theatre show. Often it's the other way around. Someone writes a book and then they do a theatre show. Well, we we started the theatre show prior to doing the book. Wow. And what's the book called? I saw that you'd written a book. I mean, I'll put a link for all of this at the bottom of the, the show notes. It's called The Parish Times. Yeah. Uh, but spelt with double R. Most parishes are single R, but I'm a, I'm a double R. Um, and it's, yeah, literally The Parish Times, My Life as a Racer. And you know, the, it's a slightly different book to anyone else's book on motorcycle racing, in or in racing for that matter. Because I barely mentioned races. My book is about the stories that went on in between the races. I mean, obviously, it's got to be in a chronological order. And it starts with me kicking off, starting to race and going on to become a professional rider and then doing some commentary and then truck racing and so on and so on. But I don't really talk about finishing third in whatever race. It's all about what happened in the party after the race or on the journey to the next one. So it's really quite funny stories, I have to say. Trouble seems to have followed me around. <laughs> I think you've been stirring trouble up. <laughs> you also, have you raced um, the Isle of Man TT races? Yeah, I have. I did, um, I raced there for about six years in the Isle of Man. I, I, know I, I know I've got 13 silver replicas. These are things that you get if you finish in the top 10 or something like that. Uh, never won it. I finished on the podium once and that was it. Uh, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I hated going, you know, it's like, it's a trepidation factor, and, and lots of people get it with lots of things. Mm. Like, why am I putting myself through this? Yeah. Exactly. You know, on the on the journey there, you'd be on the ferry going across and looking around and hoping you're, one, you're not one of the 2.5 that dies each year, or that's about the hour. Mm. Looking around thinking, I hope it's not me and it's him over there type of thing. And then when you're lining up on the grid, you're thinking, what friggin' hell am I doing this for? And then when the race gets underway, it's absolutely brilliant. When it finishes, it's stunning and you're skipping around on cloud nine. And then next race comes up in the same process. But when you go home, yeah, you, you just get such a buzz from it. It's the most amazing thing, I think. I'm not qualified to talk about everything in life because I've never done any skydiving, actually. But for me, doing the Isle of Man TT race is the arguably the most adrenaline rushing event you could ever imagine doing. That's the thrill. You're like the gladiators, aren't you? Mm, you are really, yeah. Knowing full well that one small mistake, you end up wearing a house, um, you know, because it's, it's very dangerous around it. Yeah, it's a road race through little villages. People say, oh, they shouldn't allow it, but I, I'd never agree to that because why should you tell people what they can and can't do? The only thing I'm going to say is there'll never be anything else like that again because no other country or jurisdiction would allow something like the Isle of Man again. It's the fact that it is based on the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man has its own government. They have their own jurisdiction. 
it's hugely important for their GDP, for the money coming into the Isle of Man, for the hoteliers and the gas station people and the pubs and clubs and everything else. You know, it's a really big part of their financial income. It's a unique place. I would urge anybody who possibly can to go there and experience that. Mm. And it is so popular. I mean, I, I advise people to go as soon as possible because I think possibly one day someone will go, we can't do this. You know, it, it, yes, yeah. We, if you had a health, imagine having a health and safety guy there, um, we, <laughs> we all have to deal with, and he'd stand there and he'd go, right, I'm sort of stood on the start line, and the guys are going to go off from the start line here, and they go over a set of traffic lights and a bit of a hump there. And it's got about one meter before you hit a brick wall on the left and about 0.5 of a meter on the right. And then there's gateways, there's lampposts. Then there is a little grate in the road where the sewerage system works and so on. And they're going to be doing about 190 miles an hour at that point. And then, you know, the guy would just walk away. But so I guess. Just in that first yeah, few hundred yards. First bit. And then you've got 37 and three quarter miles of that where you're going to go through four or five villages and towns and over humpback bridges and over a mountain where there's sheep and goats running around. Yeah. yeah, It is crazy, but very exhilarating. I love the way you know all the little nuances, even in that the description of that first, first section. Incredible. And then you do it lap after lap perfectly, as perfectly as you're trying to. The main events are six laps. And some, are, some are four, some are six laps. Two pit stops on the six, six lap races. You have to come in, refuel, change tires, wheels, um, and then off you go again. Um, and then the other thing is sort of lined with people sat on banks and hedges and things watching it all happening. And uh, you, you can get a bit of an impression watching it on TV, but really you need to see it live. It's honestly, people stand back and think, what am I really seeing this? Yes, yeah, incredible. You're really there in all the grit. And you do um, double-decker bus tours there. Are you still doing those? <laughs> oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, it's just a, just makes me laugh. It's a story in my theatre show, really, and it's a very true story. It all started with an event at Donington Park where they were raising money for a charity that I was a trustee of called Riders for Health. Yep, I've heard of them, yep. Yeah, Riders for Health was set up. Randy Mamola had a big part of it. Um, he he was um, the founder member of Riders Health and used to give a percentage of his prize money away for it. But it, it was really about raising money from motorcycles to save lives, which is kind of, you know, everyone goes, oh, you know, motorcycle racing, kill yourself. But the money was raised to help educate and buy motorcycles and equipment to allow people in outlying areas of Africa getting medical equipment to areas that they couldn't do on with four wheels. It's the ideal transport, yeah, because there's, there isn't the road, the infrastructure. So anyway, one of the ways that um, they raise money is that the British Grand Prix every single year, back then was Donington, it's now moved to Silverstone, but it alternates between the two circuits. And they had a bus there and um, people were paying 10 or 15 pounds, I can't remember, to get on a bus to do a lap of Donington Park with a famous rider. And there could have been Nicky Hayden, maybe back in the day when he was with us, sadly not anymore. Randy Mamola, Carl Fogarty, obviously British speaking people because it was the British Grand Prix. And so the deal was they'd get a lap of the circuit with a bus driver, with Nicky or Randy or someone like that saying, well, on the Grand Prix bike, we take this in second gear. So it was a kind of a talk around the circuit in a bus. 
Well, it wasn't massively interesting, I don't think, apart from the fact that you've maybe got your autograph with Nicky or Randy or whatever. Anyway, at the end of the day, um, the bus driver had done 30 trips around, I think, something like that. And all the famous Grand Prix riders had gone to the riders' briefing, so there was no one there to be the kind of guest, guest of honour. So the woman that ran the charity, uh, Andrea Coleman, said, could I help out? The bus was completely full. Would I go and be the kind of host to talk around the circuit? I said, yeah, no problem. And I got across there and the bus driver looked really bored. <laughs> looked like he needed a cup of tea. And just for a bit of fun, I said, give us your keys, mate. You're going to have a cup of tea and I'll take the bus round. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it when he did this. And all the people on the bus were laughing and giggling. So away we went. And instead of doing one lap, I got about four laps out of it. And we got the thing. <laughs> we, we didn't bother about talking about the circuit. I had people leaning from the left to the right, stop it tipping over. So they had to move around on the bus, otherwise they were going to die. So it got their attention. So you gave it some welly. <laughs> Wasn't the usual tour. Oh, yeah, I was flat out all the way around. Got into a load of trouble, as you can imagine, all the security staff, the berserk and whatever. I bet. Um, and then next, that evening, they went to do a track inspection and they had to get some pressure washers in and clear the whole track because it, the bus, well, they assumed the bus had left fluid all around the track. And they thought it was diesel or brake fluid or whatever, water. They weren't sure, but they had to pressure wash the circuit. Um, and I did get into trouble then because what happened was, unfortunately, the bus had been leaning so much, all the toilets had overflowed all around Doddington Park. So the eve of the British Grand Prix, when Valentino Rossi was going to head out onto the track and Biaggi and everyone else, the whole of Doddington Park was covered in shite because <laughs> the bus toilets had all overflowed. But anyway, <laughs> that, that started off my bus racing laugh and I think it could happen because it'd be great fun for the spectators wouldn't it yes <laughs> they've all got to get involved and I'd sell a hell of a lot of crash helmets <laughs> you would indeed um so for those that don't know a double decker bus that I mentioned earlier that's the typical London bus isn't it it's like a red London yeah, bus is. that is on the Isle of Man absolutely so are you still doing that no you can't anymore I've been banned ever since I, I spread poo all over Donington Park well I did do it we did a trip at New Zealand um would be about four years ago before COVID when uh, we did some tours in double-decker buses. But I don't think the uh, the health and safety people would be that impressed with people being on the top deck of a bus that I'm driving. Uh, <laughs> I know, I did see somebody commented, you want to see Stavros handling yeah. a London bus. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Lucky people who've already done that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they did. And it was say it went out on television, actually. The time I did the one at Donington, we had... I was working for the BBC at the time and they filmed it with all these people just jumping from one side of the bus to the other to try and keep the wheels down on the ground. <laughs> Amazing. So you mentioned you play golf. Yeah, quite badly. I use it as my exercise regime. I play golf and tennis twice a week. So that's kind of um, my exercise regime these days. I do a few other bits and pieces. But quite honestly, when you get to my time of life, I'm not going to go. I do a bit of cycling and things like that. Uh, I'm trying to um, maybe lose a kilo before I get out to South Africa so my leathers are not too tight in two weeks' time. <laughs> uh, too much Christmas pudding. But I keep myself reasonably fit, yeah. yeah. But it gets harder, as you're, as you're aware. Oh, yes, it certainly does. Yeah. I also saw that you own an American police car. How did that come about? A Chicago police car, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a Ford Galaxy Chicago police car. Uh, a friend of mine... God, I don't know where he even got it from, but it, as soon as I saw it, I thought I had to have it. It's got a siren and lights on it. <laughs> um, 
and uh, it's quite good fun if someone's if you're going down a narrow road and someone's coming the other way you just put all the lights on and they pull off the road you're probably not allowed to do that i think you you know you're probably not actually yeah probably not. Honestly, it's not an english police car it does have a blue light on it and i think you guys have red lights anyway so a blue light and i've got an american sounding siren so it's so it's kind of maybe not completely legal but i've never been legal in my life that's funny so what's coming up what's next any exciting ventures on the horizons or are you just gonna try and lie low and uh improve your golf uh the three weeks in south africa are coming up uh we head off out there i've got two events one is at a place called valcom which i think they've rechanged the name but that was uh, where the south african grand prix would have been in 2003 i think um so i'm going to do an event there and then we go to another track called red star which is just outside johannesburg and then uh, my wife and i are going to spend a nice time driving down through south africa down to cape town and we get a week down there to have a bit of a holiday and then come back that'd be great fun getting out of this country for three weeks is always nice in the winter then when i get back after a couple of days i've got a theater show to do um, and then the season sort of starts getting underway i'm hoping to be working out a race in ireland called the northwest 200 yeah i think uh, we have a lady goes over patricia fernandez she loves road racing i think she goes and does that yeah she's great she's awesome yeah 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 i've seen her out there um and then kind of things get underway uh, competitions events t taking place so get a bit busier again then yeah sounds like you're gonna just keep going oh and i'll be out at pt i'll be over there for at least two weeks doing work over there um well, I have, uh, we have a house in Mallorca, so I go out there, which is, you know, Mallorca, it's down off the coast of Barcelona, uh, where I keep a boat and a motorbike down there. So I spend some time down there. Yeah, I know a couple of people with houses there. I have to hook you up. Mm, yeah, well, uh, we have a place in the north of the island in a place called Porta Palenza, up the top of Mallorca. Nice. So I always look forward to that. Mm. Yeah, good. You've got a lot of variation going on there. And then you've got, you know, your daughter in Geneva little holiday over there now and again. Yeah, I've got, I'll tell you what, if you follow motorsport, I've got a very, very good friend of mine that uh, works for NBC out there, a guy called Lee Diffie. He does the NASCAR stuff and pretty much all, a lot of motorsport for NBC. Um, and he did a year, we worked together for a, at least a year over here. He came over uh, from Australia. He's an Australian guy, came to the UK, worked for the BBC, then he ended up back in the States and he does a lot of stuff out there now. So he's coming to visit me in late February. So looking forward to catching up with him. Perfect. Crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Your, um, your domestic championship's going quite well now. Is it Moto America? I think it's yes. going well. Yeah. Uh, run by Wayne Rainey. Yeah. Mm. It, we, I was at Goodwood this year. Uh, it was incredible to see Wayne back on a bike, uh, to lift him out of his wheelchair and they they kind of modified a bike that was hand controls and it was real, real treat to see him. I mean, all the guys came over, Kenny Roberts was over, um, Kevin Schwantz came over, Wayne was over and it was a big event, made a lot of publicity in the UK with Wayne back on the bike after. Definitely super exciting. Mm. Yeah. He's been in, in a wheelchair for many years, hasn't he? Yeah. So... Yeah. He has. Um, 93, I believe it was. But anyway, lovely to see him. He looked fit and well. Nice to see his wife, Shay, and all the family were there. It was really nice. Uh, and say, some amazing feat to see someone that has 
no feeling from the sort of waist down to be able to ride a motorbike. It was great to see. Fabulous. Mm. Yeah, to, to yeah. you know, give him that feeling back again. Yeah. This is the Goodwood Festival of speed because there's the speed and the revival. Yeah, yeah. I normally do both of them. At the Festival of Speed, it's demo riding up the hill and then there's a proper race takes place at the revival. Goodwood is a beautiful place and great again for motorsport. I saw when you went to the Revival and to let people know that this, this is an event which is not just the old classic vehicles, everybody dresses up, marshals everybody is in period costume. Um, but you were dressed, I saw you look like a dustman or something, what was that all about? <laughs> Everyone's there in their finery and furs. I know, well the reason I do that, um, and before I go any further, just to, just to remind myself, so, what a tragedy to hear the sad news of Ken Block, who um, who was a stunt car driver that sadly had a terrible accident I see on a snowmobile and died yesterday. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it, that Michael Schumacher is still with us, but barely with us from a skiing accident, and Ken Block ends up uh, losing his life on a on a um, snowmobile. Yeah, so um, I've I've seen Ken. I didn't know him personally. I watched him at Goodwood. He used to come over and do that. We've obviously watched a lot of him on YouTube and things like that. It's been a bad year. We had lots of nasty accidents this year in motorcycle racing as well. It's been lots of um, my old sort of mate, Phil Reed, who was eight times world champion, passed away recently about three weeks, four weeks ago. Um, we had a, a young lad called Chrissy Rouse got killed at Donington Park. We had lots of five people, sadly, at the Isle of Man. It's not been a good year as far as um, survival is concerned in the industry. But yeah, rest in peace for all those guys. And Thoughts are with all the families. Yes. Yeah, yeah, awful. But no, um, at Goodwood, they have like actors as well. Not only do the punters come along and they dress up, you know, like Lord Fontenroy with their caps on and everything else. They have actors going around doing different things. And one of the groups that go around doing stuff are a load of builders. And they, they kind of get in the way of everyone. They're digging up bloody holes and sweeping up and causing pandemonium. And I got invited to be one of the roadmen. So that's why I'm dressed up like a tramp. So I'm going around with these guys, ah. getting in the way of everybody. And like, they're trying to get out on the grid and we're sweeping the road and things like that, that's just hysterical. as 1960s builders would do. Um, <laughs> and I got asked by the group and by um, uh, Lord March um, to be involved. So I'm, I've done that for the last two years. And the best of it is you can be as rude as you like and just take the mickey out of everyone and no one cares. So it's been right up my alley. So I've been a roadman for the last two years of Goodwood. And then I have to jump out my <laughs> I just jump out my old knackered shirt and everything, get in my leathers and go and do the bike race. And then I come back and I'm a builder. Mm. Yeah. That's, in... Great fun. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. And the bikes that you race, when you're racing a classic bike, um, is that a bit nerve wracking? I mean, are the owners a bit precious? Are they sort of race it, but don't race it full on? No, um, yeah, you, you respect it. It's an old bike and has to be treated with care. The owner, is, you know, it's an expensive bike as well. So you do your best not to do any damage to it. And you'd think you'd go to Goodwood and it'd be gentlemanly racing, but they're all a bunch of lunatics. And, and I'm one of the elder guys now. There's myself and uh, Mick Grant, British rider. We're sort of, you know, getting onto our 70s. But a lot of the grid is current British superbike riders. So there's us old boys out there having to compete with these youngsters. So um, chances of winning anymore at my time of life are very slim, but we did get on the podium three years ago, I think, so it wasn't too bad. That's great to all be together. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the event for me. It's just getting there, mixing with a lot of people, uh, going to lovely events there. They have a ball on the Saturday night and 
lots of dinners in the big house. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it's um, actually I said Lord March. It's now Duke of uh, Ro- Ro- uh, Duke of Richmond. Now he's been renamed. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's now the Duke of Richmond because his father passed away, so he became the Duke. Well, it's a beautiful property, as you say. Um, it's just lovely to be there. The atmosphere, no. No modern cars are allowed in. Everyone's driving around in 1950s cars, and police policemen are dressed as 1950s policemen. And uh, yeah, it's really good. And there's even things like hairdressers where you can have your hair all put up like you would in the 1950s and things like that. Fabulous! It's a spectacular event. That's great. Well, I think you've got plenty to do. Clearly, first of all, I'll say thank you so much for coming along and chatting to us all. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, and. Um, I don't get to America as much as I used to. I'm hoping to, um, well, obviously we've had the destruction with COVID and travel restrictions that have been going on, but uh, with any kind of luck, I'll get back out there. And I've got friends living in Florida and some down your way, uh, LA. So maybe get back out there shortly. Fantastic. All right, thanks so much for your time. All right, take care. I'm going to have a cup of tea. I'll see you later. (laughs) Cheers, bye.